This is The Guardian. This week, the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, has been making a splash across the pond. Uncontrolled immigration, inadequate integration and a misguided dogma of multiculturalism have proven a toxic combination for Europe over the last few decades. In a speech in Washington, she ramped up the rhetoric on immigration yet again. But who exactly is she aiming to impress? Meanwhile, HS2 is back in the news again, and the King of the North is not happy. London never has to choose between a north-south line and an east-west line and good public transport. Why is it that people in the north are always forced to choose? I'm Gabby Hinsliff, in for John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today is The Guardian's political correspondent, Kieran Stacey. Hello, Kieran. Hi, Gabby. So first, we're going to talk about the Home Secretary, accused this week by her own MPs of using dog whistle rhetoric in a speech to the US on immigration. Multiculturalism makes no demands of the incomer to integrate. It has failed because it allowed people to come to our society and live parallel lives in it. They could be in the society, but not of society. And in extreme cases, they could pursue lives aimed at undermining the stability and threatening the security of our society. We are living with the consequence of that failure today. I mean, that instinctively feels shocking to me in some ways. It's something that 10 years ago, I mean, it's not surprising anymore. Your sort of instinctive reaction is, you know, it's just Suella Braverman being Suella Braverman, it's what she always says. But 10 years ago, a Home Secretary wouldn't have gone that far, I don't think. Firstly, challenging UN Convention. Secondly, tying together the idea that legal immigration is too high with the idea that multiculturalism has failed, that immigrant communities are living parallel lives, whether they're legal or illegal. Did it strike you as a departure or not? Not as much as I think it struck you as one, to be honest. Uh, You know, we've heard this debate around whether multiculturalism has been a success or a failure has, has rumbled on for decades, really, I remember similar arguments in the 90s, similar arguments during you know, the coalition years when David Cameron and Michael Gove used to talk about this a lot. Um, and, and always behind it, there was this you know, suggestion of, well, immigration is the problem and that's the thing we really need to change. But the thing is, politicians would often not say the second bit. So they would say multiculturalism has failed. We need to do more on integration. They wouldn't say that necessarily immigration is the problem. That, I think that's where she's going a bit further. That's what it struck. Because, I mean, as you say, I mean, I remember Cameron making those remarks, you know, saying multiculturalism has failed and wanting to replace it with what he called muscular liberalism. And it was never clear what muscular very, liberalism very is. Very phrase. Don't know what that is, but, but it was always about, you know, how we do integration better. It wasn't about saying, you know, it wasn't about yoking that together with this, this quite sort of, you know, inflammatory argument. And Trevor Phillips used to say it on the Labour side. But the, the other thing that struck me from this speech was the statistics she uses. I mean, some of them are incredibly... Dodgy. She uses this figure that um, comes from a CPS, a Centre for Policy Studies report of 780 million people worldwide could nominally have have the right to seek asylum, which makes it sound as if, you know, there are all 780 million of them are pretty much at Dover as we speak. I mean, that, that figure is exaggerated, isn't it? I mean, the UN says that's taking everyone who could possibly theoretically ever yeah. potentially. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it reminds me a bit of some of the claims made during the EU referendum. So will you take... 
a potential circumstance and make it just sound like it's about to happen. Turkey joining the EU being a classic example. Turkey is not about to join the EU, but suddenly that's a big part of the campaign. I think it's interesting. How do we respond to that, and how, how do agencies respond to that? Because you know, you go out there, you fact check it, you say this is not quite right. People don't really listen. You know, they listen to what Suella Bravman's been telling them, especially if they have a tendency to agree with them in the first place. So yeah, I mean, there's always been a misuse of statistics in politics, and it's always been our job to try and clear that up. But it does seem, you know, she in particular is willing to push the boundaries on on you know what, what she can and can't say, and, and what the truth of that is. And she does it again. Uh, it's another clip here of what she had to say about asylum claims made on the basis of homosexuality. Let me be clear. There are vast swathes of the world where it is extremely difficult to be gay or to be a woman. Where individuals are being persecuted, it is right that we offer sanctuary. But we will not be able to sustain an asylum system if, in effect, simply being gay or a woman, or fearful of discrimination in your country of origin, is sufficient to qualify for protection. So again, she's, she's almost making it sound like this is an easy routine. This is like a sort of growing routine. Millions of people are trying to use this, this routine. But in, in reality, less than 2% of asylum claims are on the basis of homosexuality. And, and you know, if you talk to practitioners in the field, they will say it's one of the hardest um, ways to prove prosecution. Because often if, you, if you're coming from a country where, you know, homosexuality is legal, the last thing you do is carry evidence around with you of any gay relationship that you might have had. So it's very hard to prove when you get to the UK that you, you know, you did have one. It feels almost more like a political, you know, a party conference speech, a political speech than it does a Home Secretary kind of speaking abroad. Do you think it was more than just a sort of routine visit? to the US? Do we think she possibly have anything else in mind? <laughs> well, I don't think it's too cynical to suspect that might be the case. And that's how it was briefed to the papers in advance, to, to friendly papers, I should say, as Swilla Bravman usually does her briefing to a select few papers. Uh, the Guardian, unfortunately, not being one of them. Um, but yeah, that was definitely how it was written up. This was, this was her leadership pitch. And you know, why would she do that speech in Washington. I mean, that mm. that doesn't really make any sense unless you're trying to present yourself as some kind of flag bearer for an international movement. That's not a, something that a Home Secretary would do. That's something a party leader would do. Um, and, you know, I remember Liz Truss used to go to Washington all the time to give her credibility. Yeah, that, that, that is kind of in the playbook of Tory leadership hopefuls. So clearly, yes, she's trying to roll the pitch for a possible leadership bid in the future. My question is, well, why did Rishi Sunak let her? I mean, that's the interesting thing, isn't it? Because you, she's a threat to him, obviously. Any leadership contender is a threat to a leader who's this far behind in the polls. But she's also useful to him. I mean, the, the fact that she will go out and push the boat out as far as she possibly can as Home Secretary means he doesn't have to do it. And if your image is Mr. Nice Guy, you know, the person, the sort of kind of Tory that's still popular in, in Surrey, then maybe you don't want to be the person associated with that. Yeah, and that's definitely true. And and Tory leaders have done that for a, for a long time. They've often let their Home Secretary go out and make statements that they might not want to, to make themselves. The relationship between those two is so interesting because she regularly says things. You just think, well, either Rishi Sunak believes this and he's presenting himself in a very different way to the public or he doesn't believe it and he's letting her get away with with murder really uh, you know, i remember when she weighed into that row over the the golly dolls in that pub where she suddenly started criticizing the police before she had all the facts and then had to row back and that would have been a real embarrassment for most home secretaries and, and rishi sinak just kind of glossed over it and let her get on with you know let suella be suella so the question is why is he doing that i think 
the key moment in their relationship came when Boris Johnson looked like he was going to get into the Tory leadership contest, flew back from holiday to start canvassing MPs. And Suella Braverman told him, no, I'm sorry, I'm putting my lot in with Rishi Sunak. Clearly, there was a deal done between them at that point. It was an absolutely pivotal moment in getting Sunak the leadership. My theory is that, I don't know if this was done explicitly or not, but she obviously part of the deal to back Rishi Sunak in the first place was that she would get to be Home Secretary. And I also wonder whether part of the deal is, and you'll back me when I end up running for leadership. And it wouldn't surprise me to see Rishi Sunak do that. Now, he's probably made a calculation of, look, the election's going to go one of two ways. We win, in which case I'm the most astonishingly successful party leader uh, in a generation and clearly I'll stay as prime minister. And I can sack you after that. And I can sack you after that. Um, Or we lose and... I think, oh, no, I've got to accept it. I'm out. Uh, you know, so there, he probably thinks there's no world in which he ends up facing Swella Braverman himself. Therefore, you know, let her pitch roll for the Be leadership. very contra brand, though, to, to back her before you leave. I just wonder, though, is, is well, if there comes a point at which, because it's not as if she is a sort of tremendously successful in just basic everyday managerial terms, Home Secretary. I mean, if you look at what's happened on her watch to crime, if you look at what's happened, you know, the the whole one of Rishi Sunak's great five targets for this year um, was to reduce uh, small boat crossings. That's probably what we'd be talking about if we weren't talking about Swell's speech in, in Washington. She has not managed to achieve the priorities that you would expect a Conservative Home Secretary to achieve. She's not been a successful Conservative Home Secretary in that sense. There comes a point, doesn't there, where keeping her on becomes becomes damaging. And every reshuffle, there's this debate about will he fire her and get someone in to sort out the Home Office. It never quite happens. Well, I just don't know how much you can do, especially at this stage of a parliament. I mean, the Home Office has, as we know, been broken for many years. And the whole idea behind splitting it into, you know, taking justice away from it was supposed to fix a lot of these problems, but clearly hasn't. You've now got this astonishingly long backlog of asylum cases. So long, in fact, now we're housing people in hotels at the cost of billions of pounds a day. The system is so broken, it's going to take a lot longer than she's had in office and probably a lot longer than maybe the Tories have left in office to fix it. Uh, It feels like the kind of thing that's only going to be done after an election when someone's got a fresh mandate, either party really. In which case, given that it's very difficult to fix these intrinsic problems. Um, I suspect that's one of the reasons she's been given license to push her rhetoric that bit further, because what you do is you take attention away from from what's actually happening. But you're absolutely right. They are they are very vulnerable on the question of her success or failure. Um, you know, when those net immigration numbers came out and showed net immigration at record levels, that was a real moment, I think, where a lot of Tory supporters thought, well, if they're not even able to bring net migration down, then why are we voting for them? And that also gave Labour, I think, a bit more leeway to say some things about, you know, doing a deal, a returns deal with the EU, for example, say more than they might otherwise have done, because they've made the calculation that voters think the Tories have failed on migration, we can start to offer different solutions. So they're they're clearly vulnerable, but I think that's why she's out there saying the things Mm. she's saying. And what's interesting about that speech, I thought if you boil it down, there's no change in policy. If anything, it stops short of what Sarah Broman certainly wants everyone to think that she believes, which is, you know, just withdraw from the convention full stop, you know, never mind talk about reforming it. You know, in some ways she's retrenched the position she had and she has stayed within agreed government parameters. There's something I wanted to bring up, which is some people see this as an odd thing to come from a Home Secretary who is herself, the child of of Kenyan and Mauritian parents. She's married to a Jew. Someone would see her as a very successful example of of multiculturalism at work. 
in the UK. I mean, she did talk in a speech about that a bit. She said tough immigration policies were not a portrayal of her parents' story. So she did address that. But there's a tension here, which I think a lot of politicians from ethnic minorities would perhaps recognise, where you're held to a different standard than a white home secretary. Yes, but I, w- I wonder what standard that is. I think maybe this is what you're saying, she's allowed to say things that a White Home Secretary wouldn't be allowed to say. And that's one of the reasons I think that we've had stronger and stronger rhetoric on um, migration and multiculturalism is because we've now had two women of Indian descent as Home Secretaries. And they are allowed to say things that I think even Theresa May, you know, if she'd have said things, she'd have have been called racist. Now, none of this is to say that Suella Bravman isn't entitled to those views. She clearly is. But you're right, she's got evidence in her own family of what multiculturalism can bring. It it is interesting to me as the son also of an Indian immigrant and and the grandson of Indian immigrants, I do recognise some of what she says in her tone in my own family. And you you often see, I think, successful migrant communities settling in, uh, you know, making their way and integrating within a society, then turning resentful against newer migrant communities. So there may be some of that at play as well. But Brothman's entitled to say what she's saying. Um, And if there's evidence in her own life that what she's saying isn't necessarily right, she seems to just be willing to to gloss over that and believe what she believes. And certainly in the US, it seems to have gone down very well. She tied it in all the way through the speech with what's happening in the US, with the immigration debate in the US. It's got us some great headlines from some US papers. It really feels like we're seeing the British right learning from the US Republican right at this point, adopting their talking points. Well, look, I mean, I spent four years in the States and I got back last November and it is, it's very noticeable that the British right is not where the American right is. I mean, the American right would have used much more inflammatory language than this, would have, adopt, have adopted a less sober tone. But there are little indications. For example, when she starts talking about multiculturalism and integration, she says if cultural change is too rapid and too big, then what was there is diluted. Mm, now, diluted, That word diluted very, really leapt out at me. That's very strange word to use. And that is straight out of some of these far right theories about white replacement th- theory in the US. That's what it immediately felt like to me. But, you know, I I think it's still, we're not where the debate is in the US yet. Maybe she's trying to push people closer to that position. But but in the US, it's it it really does feel much more vitriolic and, and much more inflammatory than it's got yet here. Hold that thought, we'll come back to it. But let's pause here for a minute. And when we come back, we'll be talking about HS2 and what its delay or maybe delay means for levelling up and for the North South divide. Hello, I'm Grace Ben. I'm back and I've been busy. Comfort Eating, our award-winning podcast, is out now. With an exciting lineup, including Shirley Ballas, Bridget Christie, Jamie Demetrio, and many more. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Mit Asana erhalten Sie einen Überblick über alle Details an einem zentralen Ort, damit Sie und Ihr Team sich auf die wirklich wichtigen Arbeiten und Ziele konzentrieren können. Jetzt kostenlos unter asana.com testen. Welcome back. 
Now, the news that HS2's future is once again in doubt has united Northern commuters, Tory MPs and businesses who planned their relocations around what was meant to be a new fast rail route to London in uproar. Kieran Stacey's still with me. Um, and now we're also joined by Helen Pidd, The Guardian's North of England editor, who is currently travelling the route of HS2 or where HS2 would go if it was actually going anywhere. Um, Helen, where are you exactly at the moment? Hello. Yeah, I'm sitting outside a mansion in Cheshire, which until four years ago was owned by the comedian John Bishop. Uh, he sold up to HS2 when it became clear that the rail line was pretty much going to go right the way through his mansion. And he sold it for a reported sum of £6.8 million. Pounds. Wow. And we're coming to you live from a broom cupboard in London. <laughs> Can we just start by talking about why HS2 is, is back in the news, Kieran? Yeah, well, this is supposed to have been part of Rishi Sunak's government reset, the first leg of which was the announcement that he was going to push back some of the net zero targets. And from our reporting, we now understand that some kind of rollback on HS2 was also on the agenda. But as was also the case with the net zero announcement, I should say, it has been leaked to journalists in advance. And that has started uh, an incredible fight within the Tory party as well as outside of it. And, and I think from what we can tell, the Prime Minister's got a little bit spooked by this and has decided to push back any announcement on what he's going to do uh, with HS2, probably to the autumn statement, although he will have to refer to it uh, during his conference speech next week uh, up in Manchester itself. But I guess some of the, the damage is done, isn't it, Helen, in terms of what people feel about what they've heard? It feels like yet another sign that the North doesn't really matter. Yeah, definitely. I would say that there's a sense of disbelief, whichever side of the argument you're on with HS2, because it does not enjoy universal support um, in the north of England. The people who don't want it to happen uh, don't believe that it won't happen. They still think that somehow the railway will get to Manchester. And, and those who want it to happen don't think it's going to arrive here. So there's a lot of confusion and there's just frustration, this idea that there's these big promises that are just not fulfilled. And this has been rumbling on for so long. I've been the North of England editor for The Guardian for 10 years now. And I've spent my entire tenure <laughs> writing every few years about HS2. So it's it's a long old fight, this one. And it goes back, I mean, the thing, the weird thing about it always strikes me is, is how much it's changed along the way. It's one of the reasons is, it's, you know, the cost has racked up. And I can remember originally Andrew Adonis when he was Transport Secretary, so under Gordon Brown, you know, telling me all about this exciting new high-speed rail project they had in mind and, you know, how it was all going to be about linking us up with the continent where they all had high-speed trains and we didn't. And originally, you know, it was going to kind of link up with the Eurostar and go all the way to Scotland. And then from then it becomes, you know, part of George Osborne's Northern House project. So actually it's really about building up Manchester Leeds and Birmingham. And then under Boris Johnson, it becomes something else. It's a kind of totemic thing of levelling up, even though that wasn't really about levelling up northern cities. It was about kind of smaller northern Midlands towns that felt forgotten. All along, it's been about more than trains. It's been about kind of a feeling or a sort of something that, that the government wanted to show you of its commitment to to being part of something, to, being, to bringing us together as a country or bringing us together with Europe. It's never just about the trains, was it? Definitely. And I think it kind of the original pro the original premise sounded pretty awesome. The idea that you could get on a train in Manchester and arrive in Paris. I don't know, was it two hours late or something mm. like that? And it's sort of been watered down. And we're now in this absolutely absurd situation where you, the, the HS2 might end up being a suburban railway station in Acton in North London 
taking people to uh, a slightly out of Birmingham railway station. Like slightly slower than the existing train right from now. London to Birmingham. Yeah, by the time you've by the time you've you've got into the centre of Birmingham or or London, it's crazy. And it's all along the way, you know, it's racked up extra costs. So you've moved from a sort of thirty billion scheme to what might now be a sort of hundred billion pound scheme or more. Given the way that cost has ballooned. I mean, do you see any merit in the argument that we might perhaps hear this autumn that, you know, government could say, well, you know, no point throwing billions more into this project. We could do so much more with that money for the North in other ways. You know, we could pour it into maybe east-west, you know, rail linking up Liverpool and Hull, or we could just improve kind of local commuter routes in the North. Do you see that being a selling point at all? I think a lot of people would like the sound of it for sure. But you don't have to scratch very far beneath the surface of that argument to realise there are some quite big flaws in it. I mean, one of the benefits of HS2, which is not emphasised enough, is that it's not just about getting to London faster. It's also about freeing up capacity on the West Coast mainline, which is absolutely chocker at the moment. Uh, with the Pendolino trains to London, it also has freight on that route. So if you take out the fastest trains on that line, then you gain lots of local capacity and you can run way more local stopping services. So there's that argument. And there are a lot of people saying, don't build HS2 put the money towards Northern Powerhouse Rail instead. Northern Powerhouse Rail um, is a an east-west railway line uh, which would tunnel through the Peak District. That's going to be massively controversial. Um, and they that's just a wiggly line on a map at the moment. They haven't gone through any of the difficult bits, which is arguing with landowners compulsorily purchasing properties along the route. So that is certainly not a quick fix. Um, and so, like I said, it, you know, it, it's sort of a, a nice idea that you could just use the money for local services instead. But apart from, I don't know, putting on more buses or something, there's nothing that they could do quickly within the next five, 10, maybe even 15 years. You're going to be writing about it for another 10 years by the sound of things. No. <laughs> we'll make you. Um, I want to just zoom out a bit now and, and look at what this tells us about Rishi Sunak. And we, the HS2 decision and the net zero decision came as part of briefings that you know he wants now to set his own agenda. So maybe get rid of things that were associated with with predecessors. So we had last week the roam back on the, uh, on the net zero targets, continuing this week, by the way, with the decision to go ahead with the drilling in the Rosebank oil field in the North Sea. It feels like, I mean, she seems like doesn't really talk about levelling up, doesn't really use that phrase much. It feels like, you know, that was yesterday's thing in a way. But what's the alternative big idea of so? What's the, what's the thing that defines the Sunak project? Well, I've spent the last week talking to people in number 10, just kind of asking them versions of that question. You know, what, what's this about? What's the big idea? And the theme of it is supposed to be this is a guy who thinks of the long term, not the short term, and he's willing to take unpopular decisions uh, if it benefits the country in the long term. Now, that's a bit disingenuous. If you actually look at the net zero announcements, they aren't really very long termist. They're arguably quite short termist and they're also quite populist. They seem to have actually given him a boost in the polls. So this idea that he was doing something unpopular to benefit the country in the long term doesn't really hold water. But but that's certainly the narrative. And part of that narrative is there is no big idea. So he's not, you know, a, a conviction politician. He's not here to sell you, uh, you know, a, an unbuildable scheme. 
he's basically not Boris Johnson. That that's the un- undertone behind all of this. He's he's the guy who's just going to come and methodically fix some of these messes that we've got ourselves into. Interestingly, that is almost exactly the same pitch that Keir Starmer makes. So they've both put themselves in this, you know, Keir Starmer talks all the time about the long term and the fact that government makes short term decisions, which puts it into a worse position. So they're both pitching themselves on exactly the same ground, but obviously we'll have different ideas of what that means. And they're both vulnerable in some ways, I think, to the same criticism, isn't it? Which, which is that feels a little bit bloodless, really. Yeah, <laughs> so, it does. It's a little bit uninspiring. And in, and in Sunak's case, you, some, you sometimes feel, I get the sense they didn't quite realise how much pushback they were going to get with this announcement, which is odd because it should have been obvious. And in some ways, we feel that sometimes with with Sunak. He's he's taking the decision as a chancellor, which is, you know, look at the numbers. This does not add up. Why are we spending north of 100 billion on this thing that isn't going to do what we wanted to do? You know, as an accountant, you look at that and go, strike that. But actually, as we just said, it's not just about a number. It's about a feeling. It's it's. It has an emotional resonance that he doesn't seem to have quite got. Yeah, that's probably true. But I think he, even if he did get it, it wouldn't matter. Uh, you know, his pitch, I'm, you know, he's Mr. Rational and he's going to take rational decisions and you don't spend £91 billion on a feeling. And I have some sympathy with that personally. You know, we've had a, a string of politicians who've sold us feelings, one in particular, who sold us high emotion and drama. Um, and that hasn't necessarily always played out, uh, you know, as we might hope. So I don't know exactly how deliberate it is to, to paint himself in this way or how much it's just a reflection of his own personality. But I think the calculation that Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer have both made is the public is a bit tired. They want politics to go away for a bit. They just, they're quite happy with somebody managerial coming in. The problem is when it gets down to the details. So exactly what you're saying with scrapping HS2, if you don't have something else to sell, that then becomes, that's when you get this almighty scrap. If if your thing is, we'll just take stuff off the table that a lot of people were hoping to see. And you know, giving nothing in return. And giving yeah. nothing in return, then, then that's that's pretty tricky. And we've seen that from Labour, for example, with the the green the twenty eight billion pound green prosperity fund. You know, you start to phase that back. What else are you offering, Helen? Is that how it feels to you? Mm. That like you, something's being taken away and nothing's being given in return? Definitely. I mean, if not HS two, then what? Given that we've had thirteen years of Conservative led governments and their flagship kind of policies for the North, the Northern powerhouse, and then levelling up. What is there to actually show for that? I mean, you could argue that George Osborne delivered Metro mayors. You know, Andy Burnham, he would probably still be an MP if it wasn't for George Osborne. So I guess we've got some slightly more powerful, well, they're certainly noisier local representatives, but they're fundamentally very underpowered and they have to go with a begging bowl to the Treasury every time they want to do anything major. So we've got Metro mayors. What else have we got? Leveling up fund, which is delivering what? Like they're tarting up a few town centres maybe rebuilding a few swimming pools here and there. Like, What is the big picture? And I think that's what that's, that's going to be a real challenge for Rishi Sunak at the next general election. What is he going to offer the North? And I guess more importantly, are they going to believe him, whatever he says, if this is yet another example, like a colossal example of a broken promise? Mm. And maybe if the rest of levelling up, which looks increasingly, to be honest, like a sort of slogan in search of some policies to back it up, if, if the rest of levelling up had delivered a bit more, it would be less of a problem to retrench on HS2, which doesn't, you know, in some ways never fitted the levelling up picture anyway. It was no use to you if you lived in Harleypool or Blythe or or Redcar, you know, it wasn't going to do anything for you anyway. Yeah, exactly. If Rishi Sunak doesn't yet quite have a defined political character or doesn't yet have a big story or a big big compelling narrative, I mean, it, it does feel to me like Suella Brahman does. I mean, if, if you certainly know what she stands for, you certainly know what 
direction she would take the country in. If the Conservatives lose the next election, there's going to be a leadership contest and they're usually won by someone with a compelling argument for why your party lost and where you're going instead. Is it now her wing of the party, you know, that kind of NatCon right wing that, that has the clear narrative? I think it does, um, and and they have the momentum behind them as well. You know, the One Nation centrist Tories have kind of given way, given way, given way until suddenly the right wing of the party is, is really in charge of a lot. Uh, and and I think you know a lot of people are talking about the next leadership contest as coming down to a contest between Swella Braverman and Kemi Badenoch, both of whom come from that wing, um, and and both of whom, by the way, they sell their message very convincingly. So you can definitely see them doing well during a leadership contest. I'd just add a couple of caveats to that. One is you never quite know what's going to happen in a leadership contest. Somebody could come out of nowhere. Second is the One Nation group do have people they can put forward. I mean, I think of James Cleverly, the foreign secretary, would make a, a very good uh, leadership candidate. The problem is they're only just realising they've got to fight back <laughs> if they're going to reclaim some space in the party. So it's up to that group now whether it's on you know net zero stuff or, or migration or, or whatever, to actually push back a little bit and to set out their stall about where they would like the party to go. If they start doing that, who knows? They could regain the whip hand, but, but certainly at the moment they look like they're still on the back foot. Kieran and Helen, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. And thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, please make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts. Even better, leave us a review, even maybe a nice one. Meanwhile, a quick note for your diaries. On Sunday the 8th of October at 5.30pm in what might be the last Labour Party conference before the next election, Guardian Editor-in-Chief Catherine Viner will be in conversation with Labour's Shadow Health Secretary, West Streeting MP. Guardian readers can access the event via the live stream by registering for free at theguardian.com slash labour event, all one word. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby, music by Axel Coutier. The executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. 